I'd like to invite you to uh, listen to the reading of God's Word, a passage that will be preached this morning by Pastor John. It's Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel who will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If some of you, like me, attended elementary school back in the 60s and 70s, you probably remember in school uh, this box that they had that was called the SRA Reading Program. Uh, the SRA Reading Program had all these big folded cards, and on the cards there was a story, and then there were some questions. In this big box of cards, the cards were all broken up into different levels, and each level had its own uh, color to identify it. Uh, I was actually surprised. My daughter-in-law is an elementary school teacher. I was talking to her. She said, it's still around. We still have SRA reading program. I imagine it's probably changed some, but it's still there. Um, our teachers would always try to play down the fact that there were different levels. They'd always try to make it sound like you all just had different colors. That's it. Don't think about it. But we weren't idiots. You know, we, we kind of understood those people in that silver level or blue level, which were the top ones, 
they were good readers. We all knew it. And those of us who weren't in those levels, we had a ways to go yet. We, we understood that. We knew that this was kind of levels of reading ability represented by these colors. Now imagine, if you would, that you enter this grade of elementary school. You start the SRA reading program, and, and you start out at the bottom level, which I think in my day was the rose level. You start out at the rose level and you read those stories and you answer those questions and you work your way through and you go up the next level and the next level through all 11 levels and you finally get to the blue level. You finally, you're, you're ready to do your rocky dance at the top of the stairs, you know? I mean, you're, you have reached it. You are truly now a good reader. Then imagine your teacher walks out with another box. It's even a bigger box. And this box has a lot more levels than the box before and, and shades of color you didn't even know existed. And she walks out and sits this down. Now how do you feel? Right? I went from the conqueror to, oh man, I got a long way to go. I imagine that's in some ways what this man in the story that we're going to look at today felt. I'm, I'm about there. I about got it. Jesus, what do I need to do? And Jesus tells him, here's what you need to do. If it's about you doing, here's what you need to do. So the story, this man runs up to Jesus. We'll know as the story goes on that he's a wealthy man, a rich man. Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke in his gospel tells us he was a ruler, so we call him the rich young ruler. You all know this story. Um, and this rich young roller, he comes running up to Jesus, and it's obvious that he has respect for Jesus. He believes he's wise, a good teacher, and he brings the question that he's just longing for an answer to. And he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what must I do? And it looks like Jesus doesn't really answer his question right away, but I actually think Jesus, from the very first words, begins to answer his question. I think he really does start giving him the answer that he, he needs, uh, what he's longing to understand. But first, Jesus does it with a question. He says, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus hasn't fully revealed his identity yet, that he's the Messiah. Um, but he says to him, why, why do you call me good? Because you know, no one is good except for God. You know, and I mean, if, if you're looking to be good enough, to inherit eternal life. If that's the standard you're looking to, you know what good is. Here's the standard. You thought you were silver or blue level? Here's the standard. God is good. That's, that's the only one who's truly good. You understand that. But then Jesus continues, and I think Jesus does as Jesus often does. He, he kind of chips away at our false foundations, our false beliefs, before he really gives us the answer. It's kind of helps us to, to let go of the things that we cling to and believe in that are false before he sometimes directs us to the truth and gives us the answer that we really need to hear, that we're now ready to hear. Jesus continues and he tells him, you know the commandments. And this man surely did. He knew them well, the Ten Commandments. And he says to them, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Jesus says, don't defraud, which is actually not one of the Ten Commandments, but do not covet is, and 
I think there is what he's speaking of because defrauding is sort of the action that grows out of coveting. You know, you covet something and then you defraud others to get it. So do not defraud and honor your father and mother. Jesus skipped over the first four. And then he gives them the six of the Ten Commandments. And this man pretty quickly says, you know, I've, I've kept all those commands since I was a boy. I, I think I'm doing pretty good with that. I've got to be at least silver level, right? I'm doing pretty good. And there's really no reason to think here that this man was being dishonest or a hypocrite, that, you know, he was just an idiot to think that. And this was probably a pretty good guy. This is one of those people you look at and think, he's better than most people. He's doing pretty well. And I'm sure he thought that too. But if this is a man who was going to count on his moral rectitude to enter the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life, then he need to fully understand what, what that meant, what real goodness is. And I think Jesus helps him here to take a look at it because he says, I, I think I'm doing pretty good with that list. And then I love before Jesus goes on, Mark stops and asks us, instead of just telling the story, Mark says, pull back for a minute and see what I see as Jesus was telling the story. Love verse 21. It says, pull back for a minute with me and just look at Jesus for a moment with me. And here's what Mark saw as he looked at Jesus in that moment. He wasn't someone who was just trying to trip up this man or expose him as a fool. He says, Jesus was looking at him and he loved him. Everything he said to him, it was obvious as you looked at Jesus. This was because he loved this man. This was because he wanted this man off this futile path that he was on and wanted him to know the truth, to truly understand the answer that he was looking for. He loved this man. Then Mark goes on and tells us what Jesus had to say to him. And I think what Jesus does here now is he redirects this man's attention to those first four of the Ten Commandments that he skipped over before. He doesn't actually name them to him, doesn't kind of walk through them with him, but he directs his attention there by the thing he tells him now to do because Jesus understood his heart. I think especially the first two. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. It is interesting that this man who knew the commandments well didn't bring those up. Like, Jesus, why'd you skip those four? Maybe something in him do a little bit that those are the four I don't want to talk about too much uh, because I understand there's something more being asked of me there. Uh, and Jesus says to him then, I think, to expose his heart. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. He turns this man's attention now to his relationship to God. And have you trusted something else in place of God? Do you truly trust God as the giver and as the sustainer of life. And as a result of that, do you submit to him as truly your ruler, as your Lord? Is he your God? Or has something else filled that place in your life? Do you have another idol in your life? I, again, I imagine this man's feeling pretty good about himself. And again, compared to most of the people, he's probably doing pretty good when it comes to his morality. But Jesus asks him to look deeper, to look at his heart and his relationship with God, to truly consider, how good are you? Is it ever, can you really put your hope in your own goodness and what you do? Will that ever be enough? For this man, choosing God alone would mean leaving his idol, which in this case is his wealth. 
and all that his wealth has provided for him, which I'm assuming is things like it does for all of us, security and status and pleasures uh, that our wealth can buy for us. It would mean for this man to leave those things. I, I imagine if Jesus was talking to us, he may have a different list for us of those idols that we cling to in his place, that we trust in ways that we should be trusting him and in place of him. Uh, that list could be lots of things, popularity, prestige, career success, pursuit of pleasure, maybe a good family, uh, comfort, power, and that list could just go on and on and on, right, for all of us, a different list. Uh, but some relationships, and the relationship with God is one of these. I think, I think marriage is a wonderful little illustration. It doesn't completely show us what relationship with God is like, but it, but it gives us a little little bit of a picture of it. Marriage is one of those relationships that to be what it's meant to be, it requires an exclusivity. It requires that you leave something to choose this one who will be your spouse. Some of those things you must leave completely. Some things, the relationship to them must change, but there's something that has to happen. Loyalties have to change for this one to truly be the, the oneness that it's meant to be. Just like our relationship with God, there are things that we must leave. There are things that must change if God is to be God in our life. We can't, we can't have God and. It must be God. Uh, in this man's case, the issue for him was his wealth. That's what he's called to put an end to, to change. Now, I think it's easy in this passage, and it's common that when we start talking about money and wealth and material possessions, it's pretty common that we kind of want to say, well, we're not saying you can't have stuff. Right? We're not trying to tell all of you, you've got to go get rid of all your stuff, that God's telling every one of us to give everything away. And I think that's true. I don't think that that's the ap- proper application of this to everybody, to go sell everything and give everything they have to the poor. Um, in this man's case, I think God is calling him to let go of what was his idol, and, and this was the way he called him to face that and to deal with that. Uh, There are clearly occasions where God gave people wealth as a blessing. Well, he's not giving them something bad if it's to bless them. And and you're not giving money to the poor if money in and of itself is evil. I mean, it harms them. So it's not that in and of itself money is bad. But I want to encourage us not to blow past this too quickly. Not to too quickly just say, well, okay, it's, it's the love of money that's the problem, not the money. You know, it's, it's making it your idols a problem and, and those kind of things. So let's, let's move on. That's not me. I got that one solved. Well, I tell you what, Scripture talks about the problem of wealth so much. It is one of the most common idols that we cling to, I think. Because of wealth, material resources, we so much believe if I have enough of that, it, it offers us this false security that I somehow can take care of myself apart from God, and I don't really need to depend upon him too much. Be careful with it. Matter of fact, Jesus talks about wealth dozens of times through the Gospels. And in almost every case, he talks about it in negative ways. He talks about the danger of it, about being careful with it, about facing how it so easily can own our heart. So be careful we don't move past this one and say, that's not mine. I think, it, I think here Jesus brings it up because it is one of the most common ones that all of us need to deal with. Here are just a few things that Jesus has to say about it. Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, a passage most of you know well. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And just a few verses later, he says, No one can serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Or think of the parable of the sower, where he talks about the seed that was spread on, on the path where the thorns grew up and choked it out, choked out those seeds. Uh, and then in verse 14, he explains what he meant by that to his disciples in Luke eight fourteen. It says, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Make sure we don't pass over that too quickly when we're considering what is it I hold on to in place of God instead of turning to him in need. Make sure we, we consider those material things that offer this hope of kind of temporarily taking care of everything we need, that we, we look hard at those things, ask hard questions about how much do we trust in that. Now, this story of this rich young ruler stands in contrast, I think, to the story that appears just before it in the paragraph right before. It's that story where uh, parents are trying to bring their children to Jesus to be blessed and the disciples are trying to stop it because this is a time when truly children should be seen and not heard. And matter of fact, probably most time that we don't even want to see you. It was, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of clout in that time and, and uh, didn't get some of the attention they get today. And so children were kind of pushed aside often. And so when parents are bringing them Jesus to be blessed, disciples, well, of course, he's not going to want to spend his time on that with the children. He's got more important things to do. And you remember Jesus' response. Jesus says to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. These children came to Jesus with no riches to offer, no clout, no power, nothing really to offer him. Nothing that says I've earned the right to a blessing. These children come to Jesus simply needy, desiring, longing for his blessing. And then Jesus says to all of us, that's how you should approach me. That's, that's how you should come to me, like those little children. Understanding how needy you are, longing for what I have to give, understanding that you're dependent upon me to give it. There really is no other way to receive what you most deeply long for. Come to me with that kind of attitude. And then this rich young ruler, he has to face the decision that we're all called to face. He has to face this decision. Will I, will I let go of what to me seems so life-giving in order to choose this life that's been offered to me? Because Jesus says, give that away and come follow me. Will you follow me instead of that? And he's left with an either-or. We, we all would kind of like a both-and. But he leaves this man with an either-or. You can't choose both. What will you choose? And in the saddest part of this story, this man looks into the face in that moment of pure love, one who truly loved him with a love that's just unimaginable. He looked in the face of that moment of true goodness, and truth. And in that moment, he, he faced, it's an either-or decision, right? 
he got that part. And he chose to keep holding on to his wealth. And he walked away sad, believing that really was the path to life. That very temporary thing, that thing that will not last, that that was going to be the source of life he was going to choose. I think, you know, we look at him and say, how sad. But, you know, we're a lot like him, right? I would love to just add Jesus to my list of life-giving things. I would, I would love to just have a bigger list and put Jesus in my list. You know, not, not choose Jesus instead of, in a way that I, I have to leave some things in order to choose him. I would just like to add him in, expand the list. And again, I think marriage is kind of a good illustration here. In many ways, it'd be like a person saying, I want, to, I want a spouse and I want to have some other lovers. I, you know, more is better, right? So I just want more. More is good. The problem with that is what appears to be more is actually less. Because if you make that choice, you really don't choose marriage. You really don't choose oneness with another person. By, by violating that relationship in that way, this relationship that requires this kind of exclusivity, you don't really know marriage. You don't know the joys of marriage and the oneness of marriage. You choose something that kind of looks like it, but it's really a false thing. It doesn't have what marriage truly has to offer. We can't choose God and other idols. It's an exclusive relationship. Only God can be in that place for us. Um, and Jesus' disciples are watching this interaction. You can tell they're just in shock. Like, man, alive. What in the world is going on here? I'm sure they thought, I'm, I'm at least a silver group person too. And that guy's a pretty good guy, you know? And I'm sure they're shaking at the very core also as they listen to Jesus talk about this. Matter of fact, in that day, it was commonly believed that someone who was wealthy was a good person because obviously within Judaism, they believe that only, you know, only the people who are really good people, God's going to bless. So if you got a lot of wealth, you must, you must be pretty good. And this guy obviously wants to, to know more from Jesus. He cares about keeping the commandments. He's a pretty good guy pretty good guy the disciples are now faced with isn't enough falls so far short of truly being good enough to ever earn eternal life and jesus drives that point home to him then verse 23 he states how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of god and then in verse 24, he says again, now he doesn't just say the rich, it says children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And then he illustrates that point with this incredible illustration. He says, it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. The biggest animal in Palestine trying to fit through this tiny little opening. That's what this is like. It's ridiculous. Of course, none of you can. None of you will ever be moral enough or religious enough or good enough that you will earn your way into the kingdom of God. None of you can do that. And man, those disciples had to be shaken. You're kind of left with thinking to yourself, I never can be good enough. It will never be enough. Matter of fact, the only way I could ever begin to pay the debt for my sins will be to face the judgment of my sins, eternity in hell apart from God. I, that has to be shocking. It's got to shake you up. The disciples get it, and then they say, who then can be saved? If this is the case, what hope is there? And now, as Jesus has prepared that ground, he gives them the answer. 
Jesus now this amazing answer. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus longed for this man to know and for the disciples to know and for us to know. You're right. You will never be enough. You will never find that way by what you do. But you don't have to. That's the good news. You are not enough. But God is. And God has made that way for us. It's not about what you do. It's about what you receive. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. John 1, 10 through 13, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And this wonderful statement in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not about what you do. It's about the gift that you receive because of Jesus Christ. That you become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You truly can never be moral enough or religious enough or good enough. But this gift has been offered to you, and we must now receive it. I think Jesus calls us to humbly admit we're not good enough. I have not loved God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind. I want to. It's still good. But I will never do that as I should. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself. It's good. It is, it is the right and good uh, kingdom way of living. But I will never do that well enough, good enough to earn my place with God. Jesus wants us to admit that is true. And then he wants us to humbly come before him and confess our sins and to, to ask him to forgive us our sins. And, and we then want to say, God, will you receive me because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross? Not because I'm good enough, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did for me on that cross. Now, God, receive me. What an incredible message that is. You know, if, if, if that is something that you have not done, if you have not put your faith in Jesus in that way, I'd encourage you to say that prayer right now. You are only a sincere prayer away from eternal life, from that relationship with God. But if you still have questions, if you don't understand it all, or you have some doubts about it, that's great. Have questions. Questions are okay. And if you have questions, boy, talk to me after, talk to someone else here on staff afterwards, talk to one of our elders or deacons, or grab someone next to you and have that conversation. If they don't have answers, I'll help you find someone who does. We would love to talk to you about that. If you're at home, give us a call here at church. We would love to talk to you. We would love to sit with your questions and help you think through how does Scripture provide answers to those questions. So please do. We are not enough. The good news is it's okay. We don't need to be. Let's pray. Father, I confess, I'm sure others here would with me, uh, that many times we do kind of look at ourselves and think, yeah, but I'm pretty good. That we easily fall into that trap of believing that 
you know, we're, we're at least in the top half. We're doing okay. God, and maybe that's enough. Maybe, maybe of course, that you will say we're okay and that you would receive us in your presence because we're, we're doing pretty well. Father, I pray you would expose um, how, how far short we come of everything that we are meant to be. But, Father, I pray that we wouldn't sit in that place long. I pray, Father, from that place of hopelessness, we would quickly look up and we would see the face of our God who loves us, who calls us to himself, that we would come to understand the remarkable story and gift we have in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Lord, I pray for the people here. I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to hear through your spirit the truth of the gospel. In your blessed name, amen.